You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Let me tell you a story. You ready for story time, Sarah? I'm, I'm ready. When I was a little kid, there was a period where, you know, Monday night football was such a big deal to me as a young kid. And my parents would let me stay up little when I was in elementary school. I could stay up and watch as much of the game as possible. And, you know, my affinity for ice cream. Well, my mom would get ice cream and I'd be able to eat ice cream while I watched Monday night football. For years, my mom thought that I liked my ice cream essentially melted because I knew I wouldn't have to go to bed until I ate the ice cream, right? So I would just let the ice cream melt until it was soup. And my mom thought I liked it that way. That was just my way of staying up to watch Monday Night Football. I think of that moment today because if I could go back to like fourth grade me, hand me the bowl of ice cream, I'd just chomp it all down when it was cold and go to bed because the Patriots-Jets is going to be a dog game. That's all I'm saying. This is a no-melt Monday night football. <laughs> that's what you're saying? That's, that's the official Fitz proclamation is it's not a must-see. It's a no-melt. It's a no-melt. Uh, I'll take that. Although I will say that every single time we rip on Thursday night football between two bad teams, we get a hell of a game. So there is a part of me. And, and remember, last week when we made our six-pack of NFL picks, I looked at this matchup and I said, I'm still going to do it. I'm going to pick whoever's playing the Jets because it's never steered me wrong yet. But I'm going to do it with a little bit of hesitation that maybe the Patriots are just that down and low right now that they might not bring enough to the game and muster up enough to even beat the Jets. So that's one reason to watch. I, I And look, you're not wrong. I, I feel like the outcome on this one is hard to predict. The quality of football is not. <laughs> that's pretty, all. Yeah, That's true. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about some good football instead, or at least one half of good football in two different games. The biggest wins to me this weekend were the Bills taking out the Seahawks and, of course, last night's unbelievable Saints win over the Bucks. Let's start with the Bills. Um, and I quickly want to point out, by the way, not just a win from the Bills team itself, but from Bills Mafia, who can sometimes get a bad reputation for jumping through tables and whatnot. But uh, Josh Allen's grandmother died unexpectedly and Bill's Mafia came together after a post on Reddit suggesting that they should donate $17 in his honor to Oishe Children's Hospital in her name. And they're up over something like $100,000 now, probably more at this point, all in, in the name of their QB. So shout out to Bill's Mafia for also bringing it. I mean, the number's got to be way bigger than that because that was from last night. Well, and, you know, that's not the first time Bill's Mafia has come together to raise money yep. for a great cause. And it, it is funny because there are certain fan bases that just seem to attach to their team and their players more. And, and I think Josh Allen's a great example of that. As Bill's fans for the last year and a half, I think, particularly have taken great offense to how little credit Josh Allen's gotten from the national, uh, the, the national observers, right? Well, yesterday, I think, went a big way towards ending any level of doubt for a lot of people. Now, I know the Seahawks defense is not particularly good, but I was sitting there watching Josh Allen saying, good God, I mean, there's just a level of greatness you're watching, and you're thinking, man, I don't know if it's just this day, if it's that defense, or if it's this player, but any way you want to look at it, you have to sort of put that one in a bubble and realize you're watching a special performance. You mentioned the Seahawks' defense being not that good. Well, they are not just on pace for the worst pass defense in NFL history. Uh, my old buddy uh, Andrew Siciliano posted that they are going to shatter the all-time record at this pace by over 1,000 yards. The 2011 Packers had the worst pass defense in NFL history, allowing 4,796 yards. The pace for the 2020 season is 5,794. Good God. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, it's ugly. It's really ugly. And that offense has been so good all year that we would say every week, Seahawks are a great team. They're a great team. 
Russell Wilson's an MVP. Their defense isn't any good, but their offense is too tough to stop. Well, unfortunately, you throw them up against a an offense like the Bills, and all of a sudden, things don't look so good for Seattle. Well, and the crazy part about it is, as much of a liability as their defense is, they got seven sacks because, uh, essentially, the Bills decided they were just going to throw the ball at will. So you think about seven sacks in a game and still unable to do anything. Like, mm. the Bills are in that awful situation, or sorry, the Seahawks are in that awful situation as a fan, where you realize the, the longer the yardage to gain the worse your situation is. Like when you get to third and 17, you're more nervous than you are in third and two because you just know the entire back end of your defense can be exposed. But all of that doesn't take away from how good Buffalo is. I completely agree. Worth noting too, though, that these are those games that you kind of look back weeks later and you forget some of the details. You look just at the result. And I will say they had a minus four turnover margin, did the Seahawks. And the Seahawks are 0-4 in those games in the Pete Carroll, John Schneider arrow of a turnover ratio of minus four or worse. And they're 0-33 all-time as a franchise if they have a turnover margin of minus four or worse. That's an important number because they didn't just lose to the Bills. They lost to themselves, right, because of those errors. Um, But you mentioned it. The Bills um, certainly have had a little bit of a question mark because of those times when Josh Allen forgets how to football and where they look a little bit weak. Booger McFarland, our ESPN NFL analyst, was on primetime talking about how we can now say, or at least based on this, when people are saying that they are elite. Offensively, you heard Pete say, I thought they were going to run the football. Mm-hmm. Out of the first 22 plays, they threw the football 20 times. They right. put the ball in Josh Allen's hands because they liked their matchup against that secondary. They realized that the pass rush wasn't going to be there. And defensively, the Buffalo Bills, they said, you know what? We're going to take away the big play. We're not going to allow yes. you to get the football down the field to DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. We're going to make Russell Wilson turn the football over. Four turnovers in the game, five sacks. So it was a nice game plan. And to your point, after New England Patriot week, it was almost as if they said, okay, we belong. Now let's go out and show the world the Buffalo Bills belong. Maybe their best game of the season. Yeah, and we'll see what that momentum means moving forward. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Another big win came in the form of, I think, one of the most unexpected results last night. Not the win, but the margin of victory. The Saints embarrassed Tampa Bay last night, Sarah. I mean, they embarrassed Tom Brady and Tampa Bay. I was in Sagatok, Michigan for the weekend. We left Saturday morning. We came back today, this afternoon. So last night, I'm out to dinner with friends. Outside on a patio, I go to use the restroom. I'm walking in, catch sight of the TV. Oh, yeah, big game. Let me check the score. It was like 38 to nothing in the second. I'm like, I'm sorry, what's happening? And the people at the bar, like, they, I was expecting them to say, you know, massive injuries or half the team didn't show up. And it was just, we're not really sure what's happening. I mean, Tampa. You don't really know. It, it felt like Tampa Bay might have been at dinner with you because it, they yeah, certainly weren't yeah, playing yeah. football on Sunday <laughs> night. Uh, but I will say, Keyshawn Johnson, co-host of Keyshawn J. Will and Zubin, uh, reminded all of us that this has a lot to do with how good the Saints are. When was the last time the Bucks faced an offense that had somebody at every single position? You got Alvin Kamara in the back. You got Murray in the back. You also got Michael Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders. I mean, they, they, you got Cook, the tight end. I mean, you got – there are pieces that's there, and I think a lot of people got caught up in the Antonio Brown hype machine coming with Tom Brady along with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and, and Gronkowski, and so they, they, they start looking at those nameplates and forgetting that other side and that other team got some nameplates too. Yeah, and, and we know that Key loves them because, you know, his nephew, Michael Thomas, who was back, which was huge – it was a combination of, of course, tons of talent from the Saints and absolutely a, a very diverse offense, 11 or 12 different guys caught passes, but also a complete 
just absolutely non-showing from the Bucks defense that's best in the league in DVOA, the best run defense, came in here with all of us saying this should be a win with the way Bree's arm has been affecting him and everything else. Bucks defense didn't show up. And, and that has as much to do with it as the Saints being a good offense. You know who doesn't need to train for a better life right now? Young quarterbacks in the NFL. Good Lord, we are looking at some young guys that are playing incredibly well across the league, not the least of which yesterday was Tua Tungvaloa. And it was sort of this great matchup between the Dolphins and the Cardinals, two teams that suddenly have everybody's attention with two young quarterbacks that everybody's infatuated with. And all I kept thinking about when I was watching it is, man, Football looks fun when you got young guys that are comfortable playing, and it's surprising to see how comfortable Tua looks so quickly. You say fun. I say uh, existential dread deep within my soul that somehow other teams can identify talent and then draft them and then have something to look forward to. And others <laughs> of us never, ever in the entirety of our existence and lifetime get to know what that feeling is. But to your point, yes, the future is very bright. Dan Orlovsky tweeted out, uh, without Burrow in the mix yesterday, just looking at Kyler and Herbert and Tua, a combined 69 of 96, nice, 1,022 total yards, eight touchdowns, no interceptions. It is very fun to think about the future, but I said this last week, and I do want to say this every time we get hyped about these young guys. There are countless examples of that first year, a lot of success, and then kind of getting figured out, um, you know, Baker Mayfield, jury's still out. RG3, obviously injuries had a lot to do with that. We're still kind of looking at Wentz and Goff, and what do we have there a couple years in? Lamar Jackson is not nearly as uh, disruptive as we thought. So I'm loving what I'm seeing. I'm very interested to see how long it will last. And also, Fitz, a lot of those guys are on not good teams, which is why they got drafted so high. So how long does it take for the team to catch up before – they need to be figured out, and then if the team isn't any good, the product isn't good, and we don't care so much anymore if the numbers are decent because it doesn't resolve result in any Ws. Well, there's such a nuanced conversation here, and you and I agree. Like I, I know that this doesn't make for great radio, but my constant analysis is it takes three years to know if you've got your quarterback, mm-hmm. and you know that doesn't necessarily make for great hot takes. But to your point, you know I do these ESPN stories on the app on Mondays, and we do overreactions, and the quarterback conversation was a big part of it. You mentioned several. I'll also add in Jameis Winston who at one point everybody thought was going to be the savior for the Buccaneers. Marcus Mariota was supposed to be the guy for the Titans, Mm -hmm. and it took them five years to figure it out. Now, the other thing, too, that I think we have to factor into it is we are seeing defense being played at the lowest level, frankly, that we've seen in NFL history across the board. So we're seeing a lot of offensive explosions. So, you know, for me, on the one hand, I do look at it, and Dan Graziano wrote in his overreactions today, why not enjoy the moment? I agree with that, but I do think you have to temper expectations a little bit. Otherwise, you're going to t- turn around. I mean, like, are we going to say that that Gilbert has one great game for the Cowboys and suddenly he's the future? Or, you know, you've got Jacksonville thrown in a quarterback nobody'd ever heard of, had good stats. So is he like, that's where we are right now that it just sort of feels like young quarterbacks can come in and have success. But I think it takes a lot longer to see if that success can sustain. Totally agree with you. But to get back to the positivity that we were looking for, now yes. that we've put out all those, you know, the opposite of, of sports talk radio, where we're like, well, let's wait a while and like really temper our expectations and our thoughts and not take things too hot. Let's get into some hot taking. The people who were so quick, without having seen any of Tua, or even just seeing a limited Tua, to say, are the Dolphins going to be bummed that they didn't pick Herbert? Are the Dolphins going to be bummed that they ended up with Tua? And are they maybe even putting him in so that they can see if they want to go after Trevor Lawrence or or otherwise. I think after that game, 
it's going to be tough to find people who aren't super excited for the Tua era in Miami. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, last night I was just looking through the Twitter feed because for anybody that has sort of slept on the playoff rankings, I realize that it feels early to talk about that stuff. But that's where we are, you know, at this point when you start thinking about uh, the playoffs because we're past the midpoint. I mean, the Dolphins are squarely in the thick of that conversation. And so Tua all of a sudden has these big expectations. And if you look at Dolphins fans last night, oh, the same Dolphins fans that were having a heart attack two weeks ago are now saying, no, 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 no. See, this is what we knew was going to happen all along. The biggest part <laughs> of it is he looks healthy, right? And that I think we weren't going to know that till he got on the field. But, you know, at, at this point, I got to believe that the team had to have faith in his hip before they put him on the field and now that they've shown that it's a reminder that the Dolphins spent a lot of money to be better defensively they drafted a quarterback they think they can make them better offensively and they went out and that's a really quality win against a Cardinals team that has a bunch of momentum yeah I completely agree and again this is a team that you remember the beginning of last year all the conversation about how the Dolphins were an embarrassment to football how the fact that they were tanking was bad for the game, how the players on that team should be furious with the front office for setting them up for failure. And all Dolphins coach Brian Flores did is say, eh, I don't really care what you think we're doing. We're definitely not tanking. I'm putting out a team that's going to play better than you expect, that's going to be ahead of what you expected from the amount of, of talent that our front office sent away. And here they are now, like you said, right now holding what would be the number seven spot in the AFC playoff race if the season ended. And that was just a couple games into the Tua era and um, with a lot of hope moving forward. And again, with that draft pick from the Texans, who are absolutely terrible. God, that is such a great point. We need to keep reminding everybody that, you know, the, the they're going to get the benefit of that. The other young quarterback, and I watched, obviously, a lot of it as a Raiders fan, I, I was curious to really dive into Justin Herbert. And I thought Justin Herbert was just, he was everything people are saying he is. I mean, his ability to stay poised, his ability to make tough throws. The Raiders actually got after him, even though the box score may not show it as much. They did pressure him a lot, especially early in the game. And he handles that incredibly well. I, I'm still not 100% sure, looking back on that game how the Chargers lost it that's the tough part <laughs> about being a Charger sure. I mean that that that's what that's the difficulty like this year the Raiders are five and two at this point in games that they had a one score game in the fourth mm -hmm. quarter that's how teams are winning so the Chargers are the opposite they just find tough ways to lose and it's heartbreaking but I do think you can look at Herbert and say wow we got a guy and that guy is going to be able to really lead us for a while and that that's where sort of hope comes from you feel like you got somebody at the quarterback position yeah, to your point, the Raiders are that team that you say, oh, this is a team that knows how to win, right? They, they get in those tight games and they know how to finish. The Chargers are the opposite. Every loss in 2020 has been by one score. Six losses, a combined points lost of 24. In their, uh, in their one score losses since 2019, they're 3 and 15. And all of them, it's like 3.7.7.7 points, 3273735731. They cannot win a close game. It's clock management, it's coaching, it's tightening up those sphincters down the stretch. And it's disappointing because you are looking at a team that's perhaps more talented than the than the record bears out, and a coach that a lot of people really dig in Anthony Lynn, but how are you going to go 0-9 in the AFC West since 2019 and 3-15 and in those tight games? That's got to be coaching. And, and at some point, too, like it's hard for me not to look at the Falcons. You know, the Falcons are yep. a great example of they just found mm -hmm. ways to lose. 
they finally got rid of Dan Quinn, and now they're 3-1 and one since they got rid of Dan Quinn, and they look like a different team. And I'm, I'm not saying Anthony Lynn can't coach. It's just at some point, if you find a way to consistently lose these tight games, it will fall into the feet of the, of the coaching staff, and there's got to be some sense of, of change in culture, change in mindset, figuring out how to win these games. And you're right, like as a Raiders fan, I was watching the end of this game thinking, man, this is the type of game that the Raiders always lose, and they won in very dramatic fashion. My neighbors, again, learned a lot of words that I use frequently. (laughs) But in the moment, I was reading afterwards, and I was like, man, I need to rethink what I think of being a Raiders fan because they have learned how to win these tight games. That's going to be the big step for Justin Herbert because it doesn't matter how good he is. If he doesn't win these types of games, people will not consistently give him the love they're giving him today. It's Spain and Fitz presented by Progressive Insurance to, to, to those Herbert numbers that defy the end results. In seven games, 2,146 passing yards, 17 passing touchdowns, five interceptions, plus another 166 yards and two scores on the ground. Efficient, impressive, powerful, fun to watch. Just can't get the W's at the end as a team. One thing, too, that's a common thread for all of these quarterbacks we're talking about is the ability to move around and create plays. And that's just so, I mean, when you see it from these guys, it's a reminder of just how good they're going to be because mobility has become such a big part of the quarterback position, particularly across the young NFL. As offensive play callers get more creative, it only helps creative quarterbacks, part of what I absolutely love watching. Joining me on the Shell Penzel Performance Line, the host of the Bill Barnwell Show podcast, Bill Barnwell. Brought to you by Firestone Complete Auto Care. Their technicians are proud to keep your car running newer, longer. Bill, we don't need fits. We got plenty to get to. Lots to talk about. I'm definitely not a scorned radio wife who is constantly left all alone. uh, Because I have you on Mondays, and nobody does it better. I already listened to your interview with Pablo that you do every Monday on The Daily. A couple other teams I want to get to that you guys didn't focus on. And one of those is Fitz's Raiders. How good are mm-hmm. the Raiders? They certainly are good at winning close games. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, they, they could play the Chargers every week. I feel like they would be <laughs> in great shape to go uh, 13-3 and three the rest of the way. I mean, they, you know, they came with some legitimate performances. The Browns game was actually really good. I mean, you know, that was a great Chiefs. defensive performance from a team. Yeah, the, I mean, the Chiefs game was great, too. Um, obviously, the offense was phenomenal. I think this is a really genuinely good offense, but the defense has to be a concern, right? I mean, they've had one game this year where they've looked even competent, and that was the Browns game without Odell Beckham, without Nick Chubb, in horrible weather. And I I just, you know, I wonder if that defense is going to get significantly better or the offense is going to get worse. And to me, looking at what they have on paper, it seems more likely that the offense is going to take a step backwards than it is that the defense is going to suddenly figure things out and suddenly be great. I thought they were honestly a team that should have made a move or more of a move at the trade deadline. Yeah, they have some impressive wins against the Saints and the Chiefs and the Browns. But to your point, outside of that Browns game, they've needed at least 30 points every time to win. Um, So that offense looks good, but defensively they give up a whole lot and and make it pretty close every time. Uh, While we're talking about teams that our show represents, let's just rip off the Band-Aid. Are my Bears going to win another game ever? (laughs) What's happening? I mean, Vikings, bye week, Packers, not looking thrilling. Got the Texans (laughs) in week 14. You're at the Jags in week 16. That's a pretty, you know, I I wouldn't say schedule a party for December 27th uh, (laughs) when they're they're going to play the Jags, but I would at least make a reservation, see if you can lock something down. It might might be a positive place for you. I, I mean, I think, 
what's so difficult here is that you don't know what to do, right? Or at least I don't know what to do because the Bears initially made that move from Mitch Trubisky to Nick Foles and it worked. Now Trubisky's hurt. Now you have Foles where you can't really make that move back because Trubisky's on 100%. Um, and you're sort of stuck with Foles. And, you know, I think we're seeing that the Nick Foles magic doesn't really work over the course of an entire season. You, you don't have any, any, any real benefit to him knowing the system, which was the reason they brought him in in the first place. Um, they've been competitive, obviously, and, and the defense is legit. I mean, there's a lot of talent on the defensive side of the ball, and they're playing really well. But this offense, it's, it's just pulling hairs to try and get, you know, anything really outside of the final few minutes of the game. So, to me, I, I don't know if you try and be more aggressive throwing the football. I don't know if you try to make changes with your personnel outside of the quarterback situation. But, you know, I just think the offensive line is struggling. I think that the quarterback is not playing all that great, regardless of who it's been. And to me, I, I think it's going to come down to this defense just winning games for them. And I think they will. But at five and four now, you know, it's like they were locked to make the postseason. Now it's yeah, been much more it's- up in the air. It's been ugly. If he was healthy, would you go back to Trubisky? Obviously, that helps a ton with a bad offensive line because of the legs. But I don't know that mm-hmm. those late-game situations where everyone says, that's where you could have used the legs, that they would be even in those situations without Foles' ability. As bad as it's looked in uh, in a handful of the games, they've been close because he does get touchdowns late and and, and does have more accuracy. What would you do? <sighs> I was adamant that going back to Trubisky isn't the answer. Now I don't know if you just switch it up just to see if you can inject some life into him. See, first Fitz leaves you, and now you just don't know anything I know. about uh, I know. I have no how to handle the situation. Anyone. It's because I course, keep getting. It's because I keep getting left alone. <laughs> of course, and and you know what? Nobody can blame you, Sarah. That that's totally fair. <laughs> I, you know, I I, I kind of with you. You know, I kind of felt like going back to Trubisky at, at first was wrong. I kind of thought Falls was the right way to go, and then now I feel like. You'd rather have something back there. You'd rather have the athleticism of, of Trubisky when he's healthy to at least try and spur something forward, at least give the defense something to worry about besides just you chucking it up to Allen Robinson. And right. maybe once every month when Darnell Mooney gets open, you actually hit him for a long touchdown, given how frequently that guy seems to be getting open. I, yeah. I, it just has to be a situation where I feel like I don't know what more you get with Foles. I mean, Trubisky's going to make mistakes. We know that at this point, I don't want to you know, belabor the point. He's going to throw interceptions. He's going to make some bad reads. But Foles is going to do that, too. I just don't think Foles has that upside of, hey, you know, I can be like a poor man's Josh Allen, which is strange to say, but Josh Allen played really well yesterday. You know, or I, I can run the ball. I, I can make plays with my arm. I can maybe, you know, scare the opposing team into thinking, okay, you know, if you blow a coverage, I'm going to make you pay for it. Where with Foles, I just don't know that he's even doing that right now. It's Bill Barnwell, the host of the Bill Barnwell Show, with us here on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Uh, the Dolphins, last year ahead of schedule based on all the uh, hand-wringing about, about uh, tanking and, and intentionally getting rid of mm-hmm. talented players, uh, now really potentially ahead of schedule, a playoff team. Uh, and then they've, they're looking for the Texans' very high pick next year as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how quickly are we going to be looking at this Dolphins team and think they're real contenders? They're real contenders right now to me. I mean, five and three, four straight wins. One of those against the Jets. That doesn't really count all that much, but (laughs) Niners, Rams, Cardinals, those are legit football teams. And and they've been very impressive in those games. The Cardinals game was kind of close, but, you know, I mean, they they played a team that was really getting a lot of hype coming into week nine. And I thought they outplayed them for most of that game with a quarterback making his second career start to a Tango by Loa. And really in the first start, 
they didn't need him because they were blowing out the Rams. So this was his first start where they actually needed Tua to make plays, and he did throughout the game. And it's not like you look at this roster and you're just like, man, I'm I'm so blown away with weapons. They have so much talent to work with. The offensive line is kind of mediocre. I mean, they lost Preston Williams during the game. The receivers are solid, but not necessarily great. But they are winning football games, and, and they're doing such a great job of, you know, giving Tua opportunities to make plays, and he's making them. And, you know, to me, they put the, the Chargers next week, which is, you know, a recipe for a heartbreaking victory for the Dolphins. So I think that should work out fine for them. The Broncos, the Jets, the Bengals, these are not great football teams. So not out of the question. The Dolphins are sitting here a month from now at maybe 8-4 and four or 9-3, and three, where not only are they locks to make it to the postseason, they're pretty close to locks to make it to the postseason, but then they're heading into next year and they have a top five pick to go with their own pick in the 20s. So, I mean, there are very few teams right now where you would sit here and say, uh, you know, they're in better situations than the Dolphins are right now. And for a team that was an absolute mess this time last year, I think it speaks a lot to Brian Flores, speaks a lot to Chris Greer, speaks a lot to what they're, you know, what that organization did and how they plan things and how great they've been and actually, you know, using their picks and their free agent money to add the right talent to this roster. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, talking to Bill Barnwell, the host of the Bill Barnwell Show podcast. Of course, always hear him on Mondays, too, on ESPN Daily with Pablo Torre, breaking down the weekend's action. Let's get to the two big wins. What happened to the Bucks last night? I'm not trying to throw any shade at the Saints. <laughs> Obviously, they got some things going for them. But my take pregame was, okay, Breeze's shoulder has been bothering him, and we already had our questions about his ability to still go deep. The Bucks mm-hmm. have the best run defense in the league, the best DVOA defensive, you know, total numbers coming in. This is a team mm-hmm. that should do all the right things to slow down the Saints. And then that happened. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it was one of the most impressive performances I'm seeing from a team, not just this year, I think in the last five or 10 years, you know, in terms of the primetime spot, playing a division rival, quality of opponent. I mean, this was a absolutely start to finish dominant performance. And I think just, you know, on both sides of the ball, we're seeing, you know, kind of how things work with the Buccaneers. If you can block their pass rush, their secondary is deep and yeah. talented, but you can make plays against them. You can always kind of find that weak spot in the secondary, which is why we saw even with Michael Thomas coming back. I mean, the, uh, the Saints completed passes to 12 different receivers yesterday. You know, honestly, Sarah, I, I, if you had got on the field, you would have caught a pass from Drew Brees and it, it would have been a pretty, <laughs> a pretty solid hands. reception. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not surprised. And <laughs> you know, I, I, there weren't many guys left on the roster who could have caught passes. And so I think, you know, when you can block that Bucks pass rush, you're going to be able to make plays against the weaker sides, that secondary. And then on the other side of the ball, it's been very clear this year with Tom Brady. If you don't get pressure on Tom Brady, he looks great. He looks like the yep. Tom Brady of 10 years ago. And when you do get pressure on Tom Brady, he looks 43 real quick. And the Saints got a ton of pressure on Tom Brady yesterday with a four-man rush. That's the formula going back to the Giants' Super Bowl victories. Get pressure with four, drop back seven. The Saints are allowing a passer rating this year, heading into that game yesterday, by the way, of 138.6 when they blitz. So they are an absolute disaster when they blitz. And they didn't have to blitz because they were getting pressure with Trey Hendrickson, Cameron Jordan, with that front four without having to send extra guys. And whether it's Antonio Brown, whether it is uh, Chris Godwin, Rob Gronkowski, guys, we're not getting open because the Saints had seven guys dropping back into coverage. So, yeah, you know, it's what we saw with the Bears, control, which is how the Bears 100%. managed to beat them, too. Bill, we're out of time, so we're going to have to ask you about the Seahawks and how much the sky is falling next week. Uh, thanks for the insight. Appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, buddy. 
former Patriots tight end, current WEEI host, Jermaine Wiggins. Jermaine, thanks for the time. Not a problem. Anytime. I was checking out your Twitter. You tend to go with hashtag wigs out. So I'm wondering how much you've been wigging out about this particular season. Uh, you know what? It's been very, very difficult for me uh, to, to get through this past season, especially being a lifelong Patriots fan and to see the success that they've had, you know, pretty much for a good portion of my life. And now it's, now we're in the basement. Now we're down there with the Jets where we're not normally used to being. And I, I don't know if this is the new normal. Let's talk about expectations right after they signed Cam Newton. You were going to head in with Jared Stidham, a lot of opt-outs on the defensive side. There were some question marks about whether they were even, you know, was this the brilliance of Belichick that they were going to sort of tank and try to get Trevor? Uh, but then they signed Cam. That first game looks great. How surprising is it now to see where they came since week one? Well, you know what? They were probably week three after the Kansas City game when Cam had uh, COVID and he was out. I thought that they were one of the better teams in the AFC. They were able to play Kansas City basically to a very close game. And, you know, a couple mistakes made by, you know, both of the backup quarterbacks and led them to the loss. So I thought there was an actual chance there. But then when, you know, Bill doesn't add anything to this passing game, you kind of see that the struggle continued and maybe the Seattle game was an outlier and, and, you know, Julian Edelman got hurt and it was like, all right, it's time to maybe, you know, see if you can get a wide receiver, trade for a wide receiver because offensively there was no talent around Cam and Cam can only do so much. And, you know, he's never been known as the most accurate guy. And and when you have nobody to throw it to that can make plays, I think you start to see what's going on with this offense. So that was been the biggest thing for me. Is just, you know, the lack of weapons that was added to this offense, and, and especially when you've seen it struggle over the past several weeks. WEI host and former Pats tight end Jermaine Wiggins with me here on Spain and Fitz. You can hear the Boston accent. You're from East Boston originally, went on to play for the Pats. You got all those Boston callers dialing into WEEI. What's the level of panic, or is are there a fair amount of people who say, okay, we had a, a good two decades, kind of we're going to eat this and, and be hopeful to the future? Well, I, I don't know about uh, eating and being hopeful, hopeful for the future. I mean, that's <laughs> one thing that we're not used to doing around here. I think the panic level is kind of set in. We've kind of put the, the – we, we have initiated self-tanking. Uh, we hit the button, <laughs> and it's kind of like, well, what do we have to do to get Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields? And that's kind of where we're at right now. And maybe tonight it's probably taking an L to the Jets and trying to keep the pace of being able to, you know, outbid them for the number one overall mm. pick, which we'd have been. Yeah, we'd have our choice for because where do you go from here? You don't want to win four or five games and then you're, you know, picking somewhere around eighth or ninth. You want to be at the top of that draft. And I think when you look at this season, this team is not very good, especially offensively. They just don't have enough talent. I, I don't care if Tom Brady was here. They, they'd probably be a little bit better, but Tom would have issues throwing to nobody. So I think that's kind of where we are as a Pats fan, a Pats nation, is we know Belichick is it's in Bill we trust, but time like Bill, you better make some things happen because we'll give you one year of this. We can't see this thing happen. And next year we better have a competitive team and a playoff team on the field next year. Jermaine Wiggins, former Patriots tight end, WEI host. Are you guys talking about the possibility of another year with Cam or with Jared Stidham getting the reins, or is is there an insistence that there will be some sort of draft or, or, or quarterback acquisition next year? 
Well, I, I, it's clearly not Stidham. I don't know what Stidham's going to be doing next year. I, I the, you know, I know that uh, uh, his wife or fiance, she's really big on social media, and I don't know if he'll even be in the league next year. It's clearly not him. Cam, you know, whether or not they want to bring a veteran, they want to bring him back to be the mentor to the guy. Because when you look at it, I know there's a lot of teams that are not very good in the NFL. The good thing about it is you're really in a three-team race with, you know, the crappy teams that you're competing with. And Jacksonville, the Jets, and you are all looking for quarterbacks. You know, the Giants, they're not very good, but maybe they still think that Daniel Jones is the guy. The Chargers, they're not good, but they just drafted their guy. So when you start to kind of look at these, these teams that aren't very good, there's not many of them that might need a quarterback. So luckily for the Patriots, you're in a position where you might only be fighting with, you know, two teams, and that could be just Jacksonville and the Jets. But in Washington, hey, if you lose, yeah, well, Washington, you know, maybe Washington's one of those teams that maybe they think they trade for a veteran quarterback like a Matt Ryan or a Stafford because they have some talent. But maybe the Redskins are another team that you could be fighting for. But, you know, the Redskins and Giants, they're still in the hunt for that division. So they could, That's true. They could keep, keep <laughs> as, as bad as it is, there, so. Washington is somehow yeah. still in it. The most forgettable and unforgettable moments of your football weekend. It's Walker Shane. The fifth interception of the game. Staked his claim. Gets hit as he throws in the pass. He's caught. What a catch. On Spain and Fitz. Now let's start with uh, staked his claim. Player, group, team that performed well. And I was going to go with the Rams, and you're going to say to me, the Rams didn't play. And yeah, they didn't. But while they were not playing, the Seahawks, Cardinals, and 49ers all lost. That's a pretty good weekend for the Rams. Uh, But since they didn't do anything, I'm not going to give them the ultimate honor. That goes to Josh Allen. And it's not just because he's my starting quarterback on my fantasy team and scored 50 points for me, although that's absolutely part of it. 50? 50 points? 50 points. Good God. (laughs) 50 points for me. Uh, But that's not the only reason, Fitz. It's because this was a signature win that they needed. This was a guy who had struggled in a couple games. The Bills hadn't looked that strong. There were a lot of questions about whether they were really going to take this division. People started getting hot on the Dolphins. And there were questions about whether Allen could bring it in the big games. Well, this was about as big as it gets against a great Seahawks team. Not a good defense, but a great team. And he crushed. He was fantastic. And so my stake to his claim goes to Josh Allen. I love actually that call. And you are a thousand percent right that in the process of, of the way he showed it, like it's funny how quarterbacks are constantly, the better they get, the more there's another hill that they have to kind of climb mm-hmm. through. And for his ability to come in and do that against, even though it's not a good Seattle defense, it's a good Seattle team, right? So it's a good Seattle brand. So when people think, oh, he beat Seattle and looks so good doing it, I think that actually changes a lot of the mindset uh, that some people have. Uh, I'm going to do, since we're doing stake this claim and, and giving a little quarterback love, although the outcome of the game wasn't what Clemson fans hoped, I think DJ Uyunglele for Clemson actually definitely, in my mind, staked his claim. That's a very good Notre Dame defense. And he came out and, and didn't, and the moment never looked like it was too big for him. It looked like he knew exactly what he wanted to do with it. I wondered what Clemson was going to look like with a full week to prepare. And 
frankly, he was spectacular. So even through the outcome of the game, if I'm a Clemson fan, I'm turning around and saying, okay, well, we're going to get Notre Dame again, and we feel pretty good about the the chance that we can have a different outcome with a healthier team. That's part A. But part B, we just found out that we've got the quarterback for the next several years. And that's in and of itself for for DJ Uyunglele to get that exposure in that moment against that team on the road is something that I think for the next couple of years is going to make him better, and it makes Clemson fans feel so happy. Yeah, no kidding. He looked fantastic. And actually, before that game, you and I both had Clemson winning. Didn't happen, but it was about as close as it gets. And uh, we both said that it was a real good chance for DJU to be the better quarterback out there based on what we knew about Ian and and some of his limitations. So uh, he sure backed that up. And yeah, Clemson has a lot to look forward to with with that kid. On the other side of things, let's stick with that game. Because walk of shame does not take me very far I'm watching this. As I said, I was in Sagatok, Michigan for the weekend, and we got home in time after dinner to sit down and watch Saturday Night Live, which started 45 minutes late, and it was hard for me to stay awake during it because I'm old AF, and I was very tired, and I watched that entire game, and at the end, I could not believe my eyes fits as the Notre Dame fans took the field. Yes, it's a big win, but their starting quarterback wasn't there. It's a number four of a number one. It's in a pandemic. And I know that the students had to be tested that week, but because of incubation and otherwise, unless they were legitimately tested multiple times at the game itself, there's no telling where they were in between when they were tested and getting into the stands, how many dollars are being spent every day to keep those players safe and testing negative so that they can keep playing. The exact response you don't want to a massive win that could propel your team to a playoff is to then infect the players so that they're unable to play in future games and defend their greatness. It just, to me, was a failure for having thousands of fans in the middle of a pandemic as numbers are going up and we're breaking records every day. It was a failure of the students to decide that their selfish desire to do that was more important than safety. It was a failure of security because I heard a lot of people saying, you know, what were they supposed to do? Stop them because that's why you have security. And if you're incapable of stopping them, then that is a safety risk to even have. You shouldn't even have fans there. And finally, I'm mad at everybody who excused it and said you could have expected this, including the coaches who told their players before the game, if we win, be ready for that and didn't do anything to prevent it. There should have been very clear warnings. This is what's going to happen to you if you go on that field, whether that's suspension, arrest, whatever. And none of it happened. They just kind of threw up their hands as if to say, we're incapable of stopping some 20-year-olds from jumping on the field. Which, which, by the way, Sarah, if you buy into, not you, but if anyone buys into the argument that the kids simply couldn't be stopped, then I guess I would ask what stops kids from doing whatever they want at every football game. I mean, yeah. is that really the world? Because that's the message Notre Dame just sent. If Notre and Dame why sends are we that, football? If you actually believe that kids can't be stopped from doing anything, then you shouldn't have had a season. Because then you believe that they are incapable of keeping away from each other and making good decisions and staying safe and everybody's at risk. Everybody's to blame in this too because Notre Dame, the reason that they only allow a fraction of fans in the stadium was because they're acknowledging social distancing, but you're not acknowledging social distancing if you let everyone storm the field. And if everyone could just storm the field whenever they want to, how is a football game a safe space, in, mm-hmm. not not just during COVID, but ever? So uh, the, the, limited, the, the staggering moment there and the most unfortunate thing about it is it rightfully so takes so much of the conversation around away from yep. what should have been a a great win and even Mike Golick Jr. was tweeting that afterwards that yep. it's unfortunate but that's that's real you know so well and Fitz also unfortunate as Peter Burns said on best week ever 
They're not even going to get fined for it. There have been three teams in the SEC that got levied fines because not even having the mask up properly or social distancing in the stands. You mean to tell me that Notre Dame storms the field and yet they're not going to get fined? That is absolutely bonkers to me. You know what that signals to me? That ACC is going to do anything to keep Notre Dame in this conference. It's it's just that simple. They're going to get away with everything. Because had that been Boston College or someone else, I'm telling you, they would have gotten a fine. But little old Notre Dame comes in here, prances in, now becomes a factor, and everybody cares about the ACC a little bit more. They're going to let them off with a little slap on the wrist. That's Major League Baseball Justin Turner-ish, disgustingly embarrassing. Spot on. You can't make rules and then say, well, we don't want this team that we care about to be absent, so we're not going to apply them to them. We're going to be mad if your mask is down, but we're not going to be mad if you're allowing thousands of fans and then you're incapable of preventing them from taking over. And kudos to Peter Burns. I hadn't thought of the point till I heard him say it, and it's an amazing point, and it shows how weak the ACC, like Notre Dame was weak in everything that's happened. The ACC is weak in how they're reacting to it. So it's just all across the board, what should have been a great story about a great game becomes hijacked right Fully so again by the conversation that Notre Dame, Notre Dame students and the ACC are all allowing because of the way they handled the moment. Yeah, it's brutal. Who's your uh, walk of shame? Oh, quickly, I'll just say Michigan football gets a walk of shame. You know, I had the opportunity on Sunday to, to host Champ Drive on ESPN and we were looking at the Big Ten. And for anyone that hasn't seen it, Michigan lost to Indiana for the first time since 1987. Michigan at this point, 0-3, they're off to just a, a horrendous start in a Big Ten where Northwestern and Indiana are undefeated at the same time. 3-0 and in Big Ten play for the first time ever in conference history. It's embarrassing how bad Michigan football has gotten. It's inexcusable to lose that sort of a game. And they were not only out, they were not only beaten, they were outplayed and out-efforted by an Indiana team that wanted it more and looked like the better team. That is inexcusable for Jim Harbaugh. You know that meme that's going around? It's like how it started, how it's going. <laughs> I feel like that's this segment. It's like we're going to remind you of something that happened and then update you, uh, get you up to date on how it's going. Uh, the first one is Justin Turner. This is something that if you listen to the show, you know both Fitz and I were very heated about the fact that MLB decided not to punish the Dodgers player for going back out on the field after being positive for COVID and potentially infecting others. Well, uh, they now have at least nine positives within the organization. Fitz, one of the sources said of the first five that came out, it was unrelated. It was people not in the bubble, but we don't know anything about them. We don't know if they were later exposed to people that had been playing when they returned to the facility. We don't know who the source is and whether they have a vested interest in defending or protecting the Dodgers. All we know is that according to a person with knowledge of the situation telling USA Today, most of the people who tested positive were outside the so-called bubble. That was the first few. Now we're at nine and includes a family member and fits because the season's over because they're not being tested daily to play because they were, in theory, released back out into the world, I can imagine there could be more than that. Asymptomatic people who didn't get tested, that, that the incubation period was way too short between the time that he was out on the field and hanging out with them in the dugout to when they got on that plane. So that test would have only told you someone who'd been infected earlier, not someone who had just got infected within the hours or so. Um, so this situation is turning out as many suspected. It's a super spreader event that could have been stopped 
that was a failure from MLB and was a failure from Turner and the Dodgers, and there was no punishment and a whole lot of people defending it for no other reason than people would just rather not have to come to the hard truth that all of these acts are extremely selfish and dangerous and they prevent us from getting back to normal. Any attempt to try and figure this out because we don't have all the information, I I feel like there's going to be and allowed to be some level of speculation about it because the one thing that has not happened through any of this is any level of transparency because nobody is speaking on the record to it in any way that we can verify. So we're only left to wonder. So when you have Major League Baseball essentially hiding behind itself, not punishing anybody and not telling you anything, and then you see these numbers coming out, it, you know, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist. I'm not a big yeah, but guy. But at some point, if you don't give anybody factual information, hardcore, concrete information on why you've done what you've done or what you've investigated, which is exactly what Major League Baseball didn't do here, it allows for speculation. Because why would we not presume the worst from an organization that's already proven themselves to be the worst when it comes to handling this and a sport that's proven themselves to not really give a damn? So now that you see the numbers blowing up, until they give me some reason to believe them, why would I? Yeah, 100%. And I know if you were arguing against the punishment, you're going to say, oh, so now you don't believe sources. It's not that I don't believe it. It is absolutely possible that it's a completely separate spread, at least for the first five. Um, But to me, there's a reason to doubt and to question. There's a reason to want more information. And there's a reason to look at this as, as yet another reminder for the millionth time that this thing doesn't discriminate to when you're celebrating or having a good time. And that includes everybody who was out celebrating the election this weekend. I would never defend that. If you're not wearing a mask, if you're not socially distanced, if you're being unsafe, um, you're all contributing to this, regardless of your excuse. And every time we say the same thing, you want to hold that up as more important to you than someone getting to visit a relative that died and they didn't get to say goodbye and that person died alone. You want to look someone in the eye and tell them that whatever it is that you selfishly wanted to do is, is, is important enough to offset those things happening and the numbers going up every day. Good luck with that. It's it's going to be a tough one to argue. In that sense, though, Sarah, like we've been very consistent as a duo. We've been very consistent on this show. I yeah. mean, uh, the the demands that are being made, I, I, I say demands. What we're asking the world to do has been the same, whether it's because you're celebrating, it's because you're playing, it's because whatever the instance might be. And the biggest thing for me, I think, is 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 I look at everything that I'm passionate about. Transparency has always mattered to me. Mm-hmm. So some level of of transparency from Major League Baseball might have or could now get them some level of benefit of the doubt. But because none of that's coming, then at, at some point I've just got to continue to look at it and say, well, I'm going to be consistent. I consistently doubted you. I consistently think you've done it the wrong way. And I consistently think that we should all be better. Also, don't at me with any sort of yeah, but about what somebody else is doing. We're not children. So let's all hold each other right. to a higher standard across the board. Spain and Vitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Uh, Another follow-up is to the Sterling Brown case. And you may not remember this, but a little bit less than three years ago, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks guard had a run-in with police officers in the Milwaukee area. Um, He alleged that they targeted him because he was black outside outside of a store, that when they asked him to remove his hands from his pockets while waiting for a parking citation, they used a stun gun on him almost immediately when he didn't immediately remove his hands. And then body cam footage showed... Uh, that a police officer intentionally stepped on his ankle during the arrest and that other officers were mocking him and his potential complaints uh, in a civil rights case. Well, uh, there's now been a settlement, $750,000 being paid from the uh, city of Milwaukee 
So your tax dollars, not the police, the tax dollars are paying for this. And in addition, Brown wants a settlement to include a joint statement from the city of Milwaukee and the police department admitting to a constitutional violation and a commitment to incorporate changes to the department's standard operating procedures implemented within 180 days of the agreement. He told a whole bunch of people this is not about financial gain. It's about people going through the same thing in Chicago and back home and Milwaukee and that there needs to be a change. Um, Fitz, we don't talk about these stories as much down the down the line as when the shocking footage first comes out. And the same thing happened with Tabo Cephalosha, where there's a lot more conversation with people guessing at whether he was at fault when New York City police officers broke his leg. And he later sued and won, I think it was a, a four million or something. I mean, it was it was a serious one. Um, and people talked a lot less about the results than than the actual act. But uh, at least there's some accountability here. I also want to double down, you know, as ESPN.com reports, and I think this is an important detail. They had tried to get him to accept a settlement of $400,000 only a year ago, October of 2019. He elected not to take that settlement. So uh, for anyone, I, I looked it up, and Sterling Brown's career earnings to this point in the NBA have been roughly $5.7 million. So $400,000 is not an insignificant amount of money to anybody, including him, right? So the fact that he didn't jump on that settlement and instead waited to fight for more, and the fact that now he's made it clear with the settlement that he also wants a statement to be issued says a lot in this case. This wasn't just about, this wasn't ever about money. This was about trying to get the right thing done. And a lot of people doubted him, and now a lot of people have a helping of crow to eat in this situation. And Fitz, those cameras, those body cams, other people's cell phone videos are proving to be so important in us understanding the real issues that need to be reformed and the overhaul of a system that for far too long has been broken and has been disproportionately affecting people of color. Um, These high profile ones are the ones we hear most about, but it happens to everyday people too. Mondays are the hot time for overreactions and for big takes. Lots of hot takes, lots of good takes. And this is where we break it down with a little bit of fun. We like to take good take, hot take. So we'll we'll play you some of the biggest moments from the reactions and we'll figure out whether it's a good take or a hot take. And it starts there with Ben Roethlisberger. Now the Steelers had their hands full with the Cowboys over the course of the game, but they did get the big win. And after the game, Big Ben had plenty to say about America's team and where the Steelers fall in that conversation. I'm not trying to take any shots at anybody, but if you didn't know who America's team was, you should have seen the stands and all the, the terrible towels. Dallas may be uh, America's team, but we'll be the world's team because we got fans everywhere and they're the best in the world. All right, Sarah, is, good uh, take, hot take. Is barfy take a possibility? <laughs> the Steelers are not America's uh, team. The Steelers are not the world's team. And you, Ben Roethlisberger, are very much not America's or the world's anybody. And we very rarely reflect upon Ben Roethlisberger's history because it's something that the NFL decided had been punished enough, and now we're expected to just watch him every weekend. But many of us have not forgotten. So go out and play your football and don't act like there's a whole bunch of people that don't still hate you. Look, and by the way, the Cowboys are still globally. I mean, just look at Forbes to see the value of the franchise. They are still pulling in money globally as a franchise. And uh, I don't remember having toured all over the world and wearing my NFL stuff whenever I went anywhere. (laughs) I don't remember the last time I was in Germany and saw like Steelers towels going around. So uh, I'm just saying, I think that might be a little bit of a reach. Dan Orlovsky, like we, I know. Yeah. Dan Orlovsky is like a a feature within this feature because he's always (laughs) got plenty of Monday takes. He was on uh, with Greeny. He's of course our ESPN NFL analyst. And he was on with Mike Greenberg today and he talked about Joe Burrow and he gave him a level of praise that had my eyebrows raising when he said this. 
Joe Burrow is, is going is going to be a Super Bowl winner in Cincinnati. I have no doubt about it. He's mm. been absolutely remarkable. Greeny, there is not another young quarterback save three or their first three or four years in the NFL, whatever. There is not another young quarterback that I would take over Joe Burrow outside of Patrick Holmes. I think he's that good. Mm. I think he's that special. Mm. I'm going to say good take. Ooh, I realize that good. in the future we might see another young quarterback surpass what we've seen thus far from Joe Burrow and certainly his safety behind that offensive line and within the Bengals team as in general is, is always a risk. But since we have to make our takes based on what we know now and not what we might know in the future at this moment, I think I agree that only Pat Mahomes uh, is, is definitively so much greater that I would bet on his future and his future wins over maybe what Joe Burrow could get you. Okay. Uh, I think it was a hot take. And I mean, it's a doubly hot take. Number wow. one, he says he's going to win a Super Bowl in Cincinnati. Let's remember that Marino <laughs> didn't win a Super Bowl in Miami, right? So let's call him the Super Bowl talk down. But number two, and you know how much I like, I feel like if there was somebody that ran the street team and made like T-shirts of Joe Burrow's face, it would be me. I am such a fan. But I also want to at least acquiesce that Joe Burrow has had a lot of success against some particularly bad defenses along the way. He's been good at, he's been great at times, and I love it, but it's such a limited body of work. I mean, yes. I, I, frankly, there's no way, as much as I love Joe Burrow, there's no way today I could justify taking Joe Burrow, for example, before Deshaun Watson, who I've seen a lot more from, and I know consistently who he is as an NFL I guess it quarterback. It just depends. That's part of it is we needed some more clarity. Are we talking quarterbacks under 25? Are we talking quarterbacks that have only played for a year or two? Like, what's the number? And I guess Deshaun Watson, if you're including Mahomes, you'd have to include Deshaun. Uh, for whatever reason, I sort of think of him as having a much larger sample to not being, uh, you know, to not qualifying. But I guess that's an important question to ask before I say whether it's a hot take or a good take. I'm sticking with it for now. Well, and I'll throw myself under the bus, too, because as much as I'm sitting here talking about body of work, like, Maybe I'm not giving Kyler Murray enough respect because yeah. I don't put him in that conversation of, above Burrow, but maybe I should. All right. So we're going good take, hot take. We're, you're hearing it, and then we're reacting to it. Next up, my buddy, Field Yates. I was just on talking some NFL uh, Monday night action with him. He was on uh, primetime on ESPN Radio, our ESPN NFL insider, and he had a take about Baltimore and their offense when he said this. Who scares you on that Baltimore Ravens offense other than Lamar as a runner? I'm not afraid of this Ravens team like I was last year if I'm any other team. They're very, very stout defensively. If you can build an early lead on Baltimore, and this has sort of become like a cliche reason to be skeptical of them, but sometimes cliches exist because they're true. And right now, if you get up on the Baltimore Ravens, it might be over before it's even begun because they do not strike any quick scoring fear into any defense. Fitz, this is a good take. He good. Mark Ingram is out, and that's the name you think of when you think of a real one-two punch on the ground there. Marquise Brown, Willie Sneed, J.K. Dobbins, Miles Boykin. Mark Andrews is a good talent, but they do not have the wide receiver and running back with Ingram out talent that other great teams have. We talked earlier about the Saints putting it together with a number of skilled guys at those positions, the Ravens are just okay. They don't have those guys that scare you. 
No, you're not wrong about that, and I agree with you. I think it is a good take, and you know, you mentioned or we heard uh, J.K. Dobbins, and I thought Dobbins might be very good, but that necessarily hasn't come out yet. And they waited until the third round to pick uh, Duvernay, the wide receiver out of Texas. I mean, there were a lot of wide receivers available in this draft. They chose not to go that way, and I'm with you. I think it's actually Oliver a good Brown's take. Got- uh, some hype to his name, but he's got two touchdowns this season. That's it. Yeah, well, and and to that end, I think the only thing, if I'm a Ravens fan, that I'm saying is the beginning of the statement, like if you can build a big lead, well, that's easier said than done against that defense. That's mm-hmm. going to be their hope, but I think it's a good take. All right, let's get a little bit more Dan Orlovsky in here, ESPN NFL football analyst. This is Dan this morning on Get Up. That's the worst game plan I've seen in the NFL this year, and I've watched every snap of Jets football. Brady is Tampa Bay's crown jewel. If you do not protect your crown jewel, you don't have a chance. You're not good enough as a coaching staff. When Brady was in New England, it was about diversity, different game plan every week, how to protect them, all that stuff. This week, it's line up. We're going to play the same game plan. We're going to play the same game plan. It's, it, this is two weeks in a row, Bruce Arians. This is two weeks in a row, Byron Leftwich, where your game plan has stunk. It has to get better. Start to use different formations. Use some motion. Protect your quarterback better. Because if you don't, you're not going to win what you should, and that's the Super Bowl. I sneeze at that take. Uh, <laughs> couldn't find my couldn't find my uh, cough button. Um, that is, I do sneeze at that take. That's a hot take to me, Fitz. Now, I don't disagree in principle that it was a bad game plan, and that clearly the Bucks, uh, if you can get to them and pressure them with four, and you don't need to blitz to get that pressure on Brady, you're going to have success against them, and that it was about as ugly as you've seen him. But he did say it was the worst game plan he's seen all year, and he had seen all the Jets games. That's a flat-out lie. Every Jets game is worse. And that also implies that he hasn't watched a single Bears game. Like, I don't know, against the Rams on that Monday night Mm. or that awful game against Indianapolis. Uh, Listen, the Bears have games where their best running back has, like, fewer than 30 yards on the ground. And that's kind of an average one. So uh, I'm going to say it's a little too fiery because it ignores the other terrible, terrible game plans that are out there. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a bit of a hot take, and but I do think that it's a statement to the adjustment, and I don't know why we're surprised by this. You you and I have talked about it a lot. Like, Patriot Way was supposed to be such an adjustment for players going to New England. Well, guess what? This is the adjustment the other way. Tom's no longer part of Patriot Way, where the game plan's completely different every single week. Every fan knows what it feels like, other than Patriots fans, to watch your team line up and know the exact dang play that's coming up. That's the world that Tom's living in. So I'm sure they will get it corrected over time, though, and it's a hot, fiery hot take to say that that was the worst uh, worst game plan he's seen all year. It's uh, That's a little bit of our good take, hot take. As we were doing the show, we're talking about Cam Newton and, uh, and sort of the woes of the Patriots. And I have been saying over the last couple of weeks, I think that the Patriots are really going to be defined how they by how they rebound from what so many teams do. They took a flyer on a quarterback. It didn't work out. Okay, everybody's been there. How do you, how do you work forward? But Fields said in the moment, He thinks I'm wrong because he believes Cam, from the people he's talked to within the Patriots organization, is so beloved as a teammate. Uh, They love what he's doing behind the scenes. They love him in practice. No, the results haven't been good enough. But he believes that Cam Newton will be the starter in New England next year. What are your thoughts? It's interesting. So we just had on Jermaine Wiggins, former tight end for the Patriots, who's now at WEEI to do a preview of the game. He said, similar to what you and I just discussed in, in the break, that obviously it's not Stidham. That, that's clear at this point, uh, that maybe they would keep Cam around to try to mentor a young quarterback, but he thinks that they might lose tonight even to this woeful Jets team and try to get themselves into a position to draft a quarterback because even though there's a number of other bad teams, 
not all those bad teams are looking to shore up the quarterback position. They might be willing to draft elsewhere. Um, I think that's a real risk because it's hard to understand and know whether talent at the collegiate level is going to translate, and also just the numbers game of how many two- or three-win teams there are. So I wouldn't be surprised if they can't tank badly enough to get in a position to draft someone high enough and that they wouldn't say to themselves, okay, you know, this is a really bad team with a bad defense and things aren't going well, but we see enough from Cam to try to make it work. I certainly would not point the finger at Cam as the only reason this team has struggled. No, I, I certainly... You could convince me that they see enough. I, I would agree with you that Cam's not the only reason they've struggled. I'm also, frankly, disappointed in Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator that yeah. you know, everybody thought so highly of, thinks so highly of. It feels like every year he's in a conversation for a head coaching gig, and every year he says, no, I'm going to wait for the right spot. Well, he was one of the ones that was giddy about the opportunity to call different plays with a more mobile quarterback and do things he wasn't capable of doing as a play caller uh, for with Brady as his quarterback. And instead, the offenses looked at times very predictable and certainly anemic. So, you know, I put part of the blame on McDaniels as well. Yeah, I, I do think that there, there are some coaches being exposed this year, Fitz. And I think you and I more so maybe than other hot take artists tend not to presume that we know more than the people whose job it is to be, you know, one of the few hires to coach in the NFL. So I tend to assume that there's more to it, whether that's injury or, or game planning or that they put together something great and the, and the players out on the field just can't execute. But there are a fair amount of coaches that have pretty big question marks. Matt Nagy is one of them. Why aren't you changing your game plan to adjust to the talent that you have on the field? Why are you continuing to force things that don't work? Josh McDaniels, you have a completely different quarterback in Cam Newton than you did with Tom Brady. Why isn't there a, a real belief that you're using him to his best ability? The Bucks. Right, Bruce Arians and that game plan against the Saints where they clearly tried to trot out something that they'd used against other teams and didn't really adjust to what the Saints were going to bring. Uh, there's, a, there's a handful of those that you, know, you, you don't want to be that person who says, I know better, but, you, but what you're watching is certainly giving you some pause. Well, and, and to that end, I'll ask you a question about Adam Gase. Obviously, the Jets are 0-8, and everybody thinks the Jets are tanking. If I'm Adam Gase, I don't really love the thought of tanking unless I've had some assurance that I'm going to be back, right? Like, yeah. uh, I mean, we, we always talk about how players aren't going to not give their best effort. Well, uh, certainly Adam Gase is going to do one or two things at this point. If he's tanking, it's because he feels like he knows he's going to be safe. Otherwise, isn't he trying to at least, like they always say with players, put something on film that shows he's still talented? Yeah, you would think so, right? To prove that that if they got enough talent and they had some better things going, that he would be the guy to help usher them into success. Um, listen, there's a whole mess around Adam Gase and and the rest of that front office and how many of them have to go if they let him go. Um, and, and I don't know if at this point they think it's such a lost cause that they don't want to bring in somebody else to be tainted by this trash. They want to wait till it's a fresh start with a new team and a new and a new look. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- there's 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 going to be, I think, a bit of turnover after this season in the NFL. And Adam Gase is the most clear to me. I cannot think of a single reason why you would keep him around. I don't think, you know, I heard someone argue, if you get rid of him, people look at that job as too much of a turnstile. I, I don't know how you look at this season and think that there's any reward uh, for the coach. I, and if you, if you see him gone, you say, that makes sense. Not, I'm worried about stability at the position. Let's go to the other side of the spectrum, the best of the best. Ryan Clark, ESPN NFL analyst, was on Get Up, and he said the Chiefs, well, this is what he said about the Chiefs. 
They are still the best team playing football in the world right now, and it's because of their quarterback. You heard Dan say Ferrari right. Yes, when you can do that, when you can get in your fast car and get and get outside of everybody, when you can make plays that other people can't make, but do it under control. Do it in the clutch moments. Do it when it's important. That's how you win championships, and we saw it last year with this team. They, team, they played some tough games. They got behind sometimes, but they believe in their head coach. They believe in their quarterback, and they believe that their defense can make stops when they need to, and that's what we've seen them do this year, and so nothing has changed for me. No matter how many close games they win, you know that they could still win them when it's important. Sarah, are you mm-hmm. in on that? Still the best team in the NFL? Yeah, so I'm tr- I was trying to think of how my power rankings have sort of shaken up after this weekend, and I know for sure I still think the Chiefs are the best team, in part because I count the most on Mahomes being able to make things happen no matter what the situation. And then it's a tough one. The Steelers, the Saints, the Bills, the Bucks, the Seahawks are all teams that have had stinkers and then great games. Uh, probably the Steelers would be in at number two, and then that, that the rest of those teams, it would be any given Sunday. Yeah, I think most teams in the NFL have a fatal flaw. I'm still looking for the fatal flaw for the Chiefs, and that's Mm -hmm. why I put them at the top of the list. Plus, continuity is going to matter even as the season goes on, and they still have more of that than anybody does. So uh, they're still at the top of my list. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.